Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Islamic theology and kalam is a very broad subject that would really take a whole series to go through properly. So this will only focus on the early development and the very early schools and movements within uh, the Islamic theological tradition. And as you will soon find out, as with most other subjects that we discuss, there is a lot of diversity at play here. So basically all Islamic theology stems from, or has as its basis, the concept known as Tawheed, which is what is expressed in the Islamic proclamation of faith, La ilaha illallah, there is no God but God. So Tawheed means that there is only one God, but also that God is one, that he cannot be divided into parts, that he is not one out of a selection of multiple, that he is oneness, he is one. This is the only thing really at all that I can comfortably say that basically all Muslims in history have agreed on. So if we wind the clock to the 7th century, the Prophet Muhammad has just died after reciting the Quran for the last 22 years of his life. Now, this sudden death of this Prophet left his community in a state of shock and confusion, not knowing how to interpret this Quranic event, this prophetic event, and how to understand this new well, scripture or recitation, the Quran, um, uh, without the guiding hand of a prophet who can interpret it for them. And so because of this, a lot of different schools and ideas and, and movements emerged in the very early Muslim community. I've discussed in other videos some of the 
main general movements that emerged in this early uh, Islamic community, one of them being, of course, fiqh, or jurisprudence, which is what we could call Islamic law. It is the process of trying to figure out what this thing called the sharia is. Um, uh, basically, figuring out how one should live as a Muslim, how one should conduct affairs, how one should uh, perform religious rites and ceremonies and so on, the very, the very practical aspects of the religion. There was also what's known as falsafa or philosophy, which was basically philosophy derived from the Greek tradition, it included translations of old Greek classics like Plato and Aristotle or Plotinus, and who would then also try to uh, synthesize this or, or interpret the Islamic revelation or, or the Islamic teachings in light of these old Greek teachings. There was also Sufism, or Tasawwuf, which is the mystical and often ascetical practices and theoretical tendencies that also emerged in this period. And then lastly, there is Kalam, which is what we'll talk about in this video today. A Kalam, the word Kalam literally means speech. These categories, like Kalam and Sufism and Falsafa, should not be seen as mutually exclusive. The lines between them are often very blurry. Also, kalam does not necessarily mean theology in a general sense. When we say kalam, we mean a more specific movement who used, you could say, rational debate or argumentation to, to convey or to try to understand or interpret certain beliefs and, and, and teachings within the Quran and later also the Hadith literature. And so because of this, the lines between falsafa and kalam can be very blurry. The especially early on at this early phase, the biggest difference being that the philosophers, the falsafa, were more, put a more emphasis on the, the Greek tradition and trying to interpret those texts. The Quran has some basic theological teachings, like the idea of Tawhid, which I mentioned, but it doesn't answer all questions clearly. And so early on there were debates about a number of questions relating to it. Some of the most prominent theological questions in this early phase include questions of the attributes of God, the nature of Quran and the Revelation, uh, free will versus determinism, and the nature of faith and sin, and much more. Now we need to get some basic problems out of the way. The common idea that there was an orthodoxy from the beginning that was challenged by diverging sects must be discarded if we want this discussion to remain academically and historically accurate. Much like in early Christianity, there is no orthodoxy, but a chaotic explosion of different ideas, movements, and schools of thought. A kind of orthodox position in this way doesn't emerge until around the turn of the millennium, and even then, orthodoxy is always a fluid term that is never fixed or monolithic. But in this vast array of different interpretations and understandings of theological ideas or theological concepts, there are a few questions and movements that are worth talking about. And one of the early, most hotly debated questions was the question of free will. And it seems that many of the early Umayyad caliphs, and indeed many people in the Muslim community in general, seems to have held a deterministic position, that we don't have free will, but that God is in control of every event and every action, even our own actions. And this, of course, upholds God's absolute power, but it also comes with another problem. Because the Quran and the Islamic religion generally speaks about certain responsibilities, that we are to act in a certain way, that we have certain um, uh, rituals that we need to perform in order to avoid 
going to hell, for example. But if we don't have free will, then what's the point of even following these prescriptions? If we're actually not in control, then why is the Quran telling us to do anything? This led some Muslim scholars, many associated with a pietistic school called the Qadiris, to argue that indeed we do have free will and that we are responsible for our own actions. A similar opinion was held by the Kharajites, an often extreme group who seceded from Ali's army and opposed the Umayyad regime. They also held the belief in free will, as would the more moderate offshoot of the Abadis later on. The Kharajites' insistence on free will is related to their strict ideas about sin and belief, which was another theological question that was discussed at this time. According to the Kharajites and later the Ibadis, a person's beliefs and actions are intimately connected. So if a person commits grave sins, that sort of revokes his status as a believer or a Muslim. And this is, for example, why some Kharajites felt like they could assassinate Ali because they felt that his actions had made him lose his status as a Muslim. Other groups disagreed. Groups like the Murgia argued that the judgment on sinners, especially those of the past, should be left to God, and thus promoted unity in the community by trying to end this constant arguing over sinning. To them, faith and action are separated. Faith is something that is completely internal and can only be expressed verbally, whereas actions can only indicate one's beliefs but don't have a direct correspondence. In the words of Khalid Blankenship, quote, Thus, bowing to the sun or to an idol could only be an indication of unbelief and not unbelief in itself. Only God can know the true state of a person's faith or beliefs, and thus he is the only one who can also judge them. Thus, according to this belief, sinners cannot be called unbelievers, but at worst, misguided believers. The Murgia are considered to be extinct today, but some of the basic ideas of this movement has survived into the Hanafi school of law and the Maturidi school of Kalam. Other questions which were discussed include the question of hell or the nature of hell. Some believe that hell was temporary and that everyone would be allowed into paradise eventually, while others saw hell as eternal. We also had debates regarding God and his attributes, as well as the nature of the Quran and Revelation, which I'll return to soon. But what's important to remember is that in this very early stage, we're talking the first century basically, we can't really talk about schools of thought in, in the strict sense, but rather sort of loosely associated movements uh, that held similar beliefs. But also people within these so-called movements often could hold competing views on certain questions while agreeing on others. So we, we're not talking about uh, a set of, of fixed schools at this point. What's usually considered the first proper school of doctrinal theology or kalam is what is known as the Mu'atazila. Its origins is often attributed to the thinker Wasil ibn Atta and would wield a significant level of prominence in the following centuries. The Mu'atazila is characterized by a strong use of reason in determining their theological and doctrinal uh, interpretations and understandings. This wasn't all that uncommon at the time. Similar tendencies were very popular in jurisprudence or fiqh at the time as well. But this emphasis on logic and rationality did lead to some of the characteristic teachings of this particular school. Firstly, the Mu'atazila were strong supporters of free will. God creates human beings with the ability to choose and to act. 
They also held that in order to retain God's oneness and transcendence, and thus the doctrine of Tawhid, he must be without any creaturely qualities. There were some at this time who taught that God had a physical body, or some kind of body at least, since many Quranic verses talk about his hands and face and him sitting on the throne and so on. The Mu'tazila and many others instead argue that all such verses of the Quran should be read allegorically or metaphorically and not literally. God is thus absolutely beyond comprehension and has no qualities or attributes as such. Regarding the debate on qualities like power and life or knowledge, they argued that these aren't attributes that God has as a part of himself, but that these attributes are his essence. Quote, God knows through himself rather than a knowledge other than himself. So he, God doesn't have knowledge. God is knowledge and he knows through himself which is the knowledge that he is, and so on. And perhaps most famously, and a point that would constitute what is perhaps the most heated debate at the time, they held that the Quran was created rather than being co-eternal with God. And we will return to this debate shortly. In a general sense, the Mu'tazila put a strong emphasis on aql, or intellect, as well as reason to determine or understand the world, but also God and revelation. And all of these ideas were present in the region and in the Muslim community before this, but the Mu'tazila can be said to be the first proper school, or sort of unified uh, movement, uh, who very much proclaim these ideas. This general attitude was part of a larger trend within the early Muslim community, and one that was at this time actually predominant. Um, even scholars in, in jurisprudence, jurists, also favored rational inquiry and personal opinion called Rai, which they used alongside the Quran. And it was only in later periods that a more strict or textual-based practice came to be the norm by implementing hadith and these things. The earliest Hanafi school of jurisprudence, for example, had strong contact with the Mu'tazila and with the Murjiites, for example. But as the 8th century reached its concluding decades and as the 9th century uh, started, there was another movement that was very much growing in prominence, and this is a group that is often called the traditionalists. Um, the traditionalists are also often synonymous with the so-called traditionist or the Ahl al-Hadith. And they are called this because these are the people who would argue for and collect Hadith literature and argue for its wider usage in, in both jurisprudence and fiqh and also in theological questions. Instead of emphasizing rationality and personal interpretation, they saw this as problematic as it led to disunity in both doctrine and practice. Instead, they favored a strict scriptural approach where the Quran was to be read literally and followed to the letter. It is also this group that around this time became central to the gathering and collecting of hadith, which is stories and saying of the Prophet Muhammad, and arguing that these should be used alongside the Quran almost exclusively, in determining practice and belief, at the expense of rational speculation or personal opinion. So, whereas the Mu'tazila believed in free will, the traditionalists were deterministic. They didn't want to divest God of any power over creation, including human actions. Similarly, they wanted to read the Quran literally, and so God to them had anthropomorphic qualities, as they are described in the Quran. They criticized the Mu'tazila's belief in God's nature as denying his attributes. So, remember, the Mu'tazila said that God doesn't have attributes as described in the Quran, that these are to be read metaphorically, and even the essential attributes like life and knowledge are only 
they're not part of his essence, they are his essence. And so the traditionalists would very much criticize this and say that they are denying God his attributes. As you might expect, they also denied the idea that the Quran was created, but instead that it was uncreated and co-eternal with God. Being God's speech, they argued that there could not have been a time when God did not speak or know the Quran, and so it must have existed before creation. And this is kind of similar to debates in early Christian theology, where people discussed the nature of Christ. Is he equal to God or subordinate to him, like the Arians held? This question of the createdness of the Quran may seem like a trivial question, but it does actually have some significant implications. Some would argue that if we say that the Quran is created at a specific point in time, then this seems to mean that it was also catered to a specific audience. And this could also then lead to a larger openness in reinterpreting to new times and new situations, whereas an eternal Quran makes this a bit more difficult. The traditionalists are also characterized, like I said, by our reverence for collecting and use of hadith literature, which they thought should be used to complement the Quran in a very comprehensive way. The Mu'tazila, on the other hand, were sometimes skeptical or outright hostile to the hadith literature, sometimes even calling it mere guesswork and even calling them absurd and blasphemous. They argue that the hadith were simply used and fabricated by the traditionalists to support their ideological positions and thus constituted bidah or innovation. And this is a position that they shared with many of the early jurists as well. While this division is rather generalizing and there was most likely more of a spectrum of positions and people uh, in between these two extremes, but the Mu'atazila and the traditionalists would engage in debates and polemical arguments for a long time in this early period. The question of the createdness of the Quran became an especially heated debate in the early 9th century. The term created in this sense does not mean that they believed that the Quran was created or written by a human being, not even Muhammad. There was no debate about whether or not the Quran was God's word in a literal sense. Everyone in this debate agreed on this. The question was whether God created it at a specific point in time, like he creates other objects in the world, or if it being God's speech, existed eternally with him. Now, opinions on the nature of revelation varied in this early period. There seems to have been even those who viewed Muhammad as having composed the Quran to some degree, or at least that he had a much bigger role to play in its composition. But no writings or references to these groups in a secure sense survives to this day. However, the Ismaili Shiites held a similar position and thought that the Quran was, quote, the divinely inspired word of the Prophet Muhammad. In any case, at the time of the Mu'tazila and traditionalist debate, and in the Sunni world generally, the majority of Muslims had adopted the idea of the Quran as God's literal word, and thus this is the context in which this particular debate takes place. The rational Mu'tazila position was often supported by the Abbasid caliphs and was popular among the educated elite of society. By the time of Caliph al-Mahmun, it was even adopted as a state doctrine. The question of the creativeness of the Quran was especially important for al-Mahmun and his supporters at this time. And since the traditionalists were growing in popularity, this led to an infamous episode that is often referred to as the Mihna, or the Inquisition. As Mu'tazilism was adopted as state policy, the traditionalist position was seen as a threat to what they considered to be right doctrine. As a result, the state officials would sometimes force traditionalist scholars to accept the idea that the Quran was created. 
some of these scholars reluctantly accepted and did affirm this position, while others refused and were often not treated too well as a result. The proper mehna started in 833, in which some of these scholars who had refused to affirm the Mu'tazilite position were arrested and imprisoned. And these scholars included the very famous scholar and uh, hadith collector Ahmed ibn Hanbal, who is the namesake of the Hanbali Law School. He has become significant later on as the kind of arch-traditionalist who is the face of this whole movement. Um, as I said, he's also the founder and namesake of the Hanbali Law School, which is often considered to be the most strict and conservative of all of the mainstream schools. And when we talk about traditionalist theology, it is sometimes known as Hanbali theology. Ahmed ibn Hanbal was arrested and even tortured in their attempt to make him accept the position that the Quran was created, but he continuously refused. State support for Mu'tazilism in particular officially ended in 851, and as you can imagine, the Inquisition and the general way that the state forced acceptance of Mu'tazilism in that way really only had the opposite effect. It really completely backfired on them. Ahmed ibn Hanbal and others who had been imprisoned or tortured became like martyrs for this movement, which only increased its popularity in the wider Muslim world. They were seen as heroes who stood up for their beliefs, while the caliphs and, by extension, the Mu'tazila, were suddenly associated with oppression and persecution. Thus, sometime in the 9th century, the traditionalist position started to gain the upper hand in the Sunni world, both in terms of theology and jurisprudence. The use of hadith as a primary source of law and practice, which had been so criticized by some Mu'tazila and earlier jurists, was given a prominent role as second only to the Quran, and even as an essential part of revelation by traditionally oriented thinkers like Imam al-Shafi and Ahmad ibn Hanbal, which then became the norm for all Islamic law. In theological matters, similar tendencies took place. The triumph of the traditionalists can be attributed to, as we have seen, social and political factors, but also likely the fact that the more literal interpretations appealed to a more general mass of people who viewed God as a personal being rather than some more abstract concept. However, the positions of people like Ahmed ibn Hanbal were often considered extreme even by more conservative scholars. So a pure traditionalism or Hanbalism didn't survive for too long as a widely accepted doctrine. A kind of compromise or synthesis was needed here. In a way, this compromise came with a scholar and theologian by the name Abu al-Hassan al-Ashari. He was originally a Mu'tazilite, but at some point in his life made a complete turnaround and became a Hanbalite. From that point on, he would attempt to apply the argumentative approach of the Mu'tazila and apply it to the Hanbali position, and through doing so, created a new school, which is called Asharism, or the Ashariya. And from this point on, Asharism would become the most popular and widely accepted theological school of Kalam throughout the Sunni world. It is often seen as a synthesis or compromise in between the Mu'tazila on the one hand and the traditionalists on the other, which is true in one sense, but in actual reality it is a lot closer to the traditionalist side than to the Mu'tazila, even if it does move away from some of the extremes of the earlier traditionalist movements. For example, the Asharis tend to argue that the attributes and qualities of God are real and co-eternal with him, and that they are neither God himself nor other than him. They often hold that if the Quran says that God has a certain attribute, we should accept this fact, but also accept the fact that we don't know what this actually means in reality. 
In a similarly compromising fashion, they hold a middle position regarding the createdness of the Quran. The Quran in its essence is uncreated and eternal, but when it is formulated in letters and sounds, it becomes created. Humans also have a certain degree of free will, but all options are created by God, so it is a limited kind of free will. Being a Kalam school, they also accepted the practice of Kalam, whereas the traditional traditionalists were often hostile to this practice altogether. Very famous thinkers like Abu Hamid al-Ghazali and Fakhar ibn al-Razi were Asherites, and it would generally hold a prominent position among Sunnis, especially those from the Shafi and Maliki law schools. The Hanafi law school, however, has often favored another, even later school of Kalam, known as the Maturidi school, named after Abu Mansur al-Maturidi. This school can be seen as another kind of compromise or middle position. They are closer to the Mu'tazila than the Asharis are and have taken some influence from the previously mentioned Murjia movement. Particularly the idea that faith and actions are unconnected and thus only God can truly know and judge the faith of a believer. In the Maturidi school, faith doesn't decrease or increase based on actions, and in this they differed from the Asharis. They also held that fascinating position where the human being can rationally determine what is right or wrong in terms of ethics, and in that sense does not necessarily need revelation to tell them what is right and wrong. Which, of course, shows you that they were very strongly rationalistically oriented. As I've said, the Hanafi school of law often adopted the Maturidi school to a large degree, and this school became very prominent during the Ottoman Empire, especially when the Hanafi school was kind of official state policy. So this is the basics of the Sunni world. The Shia, however, are quite different. In a generalizing sense, the Twelver and Zaidi Shia have actually adopted the Mu'tazila as its main school of Kalam historically, in various forms. On the other hand, the Ismaili Shia have their own unique perspective, which is heavily influenced by the Greek Neoplatonic school in a very direct sense. Again, in the words of Khaled Blankenship, around the turn of the millennium, quote, the Muslim world had begun to settle on several defining and immensely enduring doctrinal alignments that have not been substantially altered since. The Ashari, Maturidi, and Hanbali Sunnis, two varieties of Mu'tazilism among Twelver and the Sa'idi Shia, the Neoplatonism of many Ismaili Shia, and the Ibadi doctrines among the residual Kharijites. I find this a bit generalizing, but it is a good starting point to understand the different schools or positions within different branches of Islam. Important to remember is also that the difference between Kalam and Falsafa, philosophy, is often very blurry, and the two were often very inspired by each other. I haven't talked about any of the Muslim philosophers, but their writings and ideas very much inspired the Kalam scholars. Their ideas and language had a lasting impact on Kalam theology. Generally. Some theologians violently opposed philosophy or falsafa, while others were more accepting and adopting it. It is sometimes stated that by the time of Al-Ghazali, and when he wrote books like The Incoherence of the Philosophers, this represents a triumph of kalam and theology over philosophy. But this isn't really that accurate. Not only did falsafa survive in a direct way, in the Persian world especially, but the falsafa tradition and its ideas had been used and incorporated into kalam argumentation, and thus also survived indirectly in that way too. 
And even though I have painted a picture which indicates that by the term of the first millennium there existed clear schools of theology that were followed by certain groups, we must remember that these are all huge generalizations. Neither the Mu'tazila, the Asharis, or the Maturidis are fixed institutions, but theological debates have continued even to this day regarding various subjects of theology. It is an ever-evolving tradition. We have also seen a kind of resurgence of the Mu'tazila in the Sunni world in the last century or two, with the appearance of what is often referred to as Islamic modernism and their adoption of Mu'tazilite ideas, which is often called Neo-Mu'tazilism. Basically, a lot more happens from the Middle Ages forward. I have focused on giving you an introduction to the very early centuries of this development to give you a basic understanding of the origins. I'll see you next time. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.